Welcome to Indigenous Success. Doing it, thinking it, being it. With Dr. Caitlin Barney and Professor Tracy Bunder. Hi everyone, I'm Caitlin and welcome to our podcast series, Indigenous Success, Doing It, Thinking It, Being It. I'd like to start the podcast by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands where we're recording today and pay our respects to their ancestors and their descendants who continue to have strong spiritual and cultural connections to country. I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land where you're listening from today and pay my respects to them as well. The podcast series focuses on what works in outreach programs for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander school students. This series is part of a suite of resources developed from an equity fellowship I undertook in 2020, funded by the National Centre for Student Equity in Higher Education. It focuses on success factors that are based on key findings from the fellowship. Each episode is an interview with an Indigenous staff member or university student about aspects of effective outreach. I'm a non-Indigenous woman born and raised on Jagger and Turrbal country, and I'm joined by my co-host and colleague, Professor Tracy Bunder, who was part of the advisory group on the fellowship. Hello, everyone. I'm a Noogie Waka Waka woman and currently the director for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies Unit and head of academic programs at the University of Queensland. Caitlin and I decided to call the podcast series Indigenous Success, Doing It, Thinking It, Being It, because there are multiple understandings of success in this context. We think about success in terms of the influences within our life and the experiences that inform our life. Perhaps success is informed also by the locations in which we find ourselves in the context and, of course, cultural matters. All of these influence projections of leadership. Also, you'll hear Caitlin and I use the terms Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, Indigenous and First Nations in this podcast. And we want to acknowledge this and note that we are aware of the diversity and the different perspectives on use of these terms. We hope that the podcast is useful for outreach practitioners working with Indigenous students, but we also hope that it's useful for anyone with an interest in student equity and student success in higher education more generally. Today our theme is around why evaluation of outreach activities is so important, and our guest today is Professor Maria Rossiti. Maria is the Director of the Indigenous and Transcultural Research Centre and an Adjunct Fellow with the National Centre for Student Equity in Higher Education. Maria was also part of the advisory group for the fellowship. So welcome, Maria, to the podcast. Thank you. And thank you for inviting me along. I've been really excited about participating. Would you mind to introduce yourself in whatever way feels comfortable for you? I'm Maria Rossiti. I'm a Kalkadoon Thankwith Bulkerman woman. I live here in beautiful Gubby Gubby country and have lived here uh, for about 20 years now. Um, I'm a professor of marketing and marketing has always sort of been one of my main interest areas. Um, And sometimes people find that peculiar because I'm also uh, the director of the Indigenous and or co-director of the Indigenous and Transcultural Research Centre here. Um, I grew up in regional Queensland uh, and a lot of my work in many ways is informed by my own lived experience. And that means I have a lot of empathy and understanding for 
what evaluation means as well as the experiences of the students themselves. Can you just talk into a little bit more about those roles that you have within the university? So when I started my university career, I started out as uh, in marketing, as an academic in marketing, always been thrilled by, I guess, the combination of design and analytical thinking. Um, I didn't actually realise till I started at university that a lot of Indigenous people well, didn't do business degrees, were mostly in education as well as in social work and counselling areas and, and certain other disciplines. So it wasn't really till I started as a full-time employee that I actually, someone pointed out to me that I was peculiar in that. Uh, and it was interesting in terms of my story because no one told me that I couldn't or shouldn't and possibly if they did, I still would have done the opposite of what they said. Um, so a lot of resistance there. Um, so I think growing up, it was very odd. My, other, my parents have uh, education past primary school and neither my grandparents either. Um, so to actually finish high school, uh, to get to grade 10 was a milestone in and of itself. To finish it was amazing. And then to eventually go all the way along to becoming a full professor in an area that's I guess a non-traditional area of study um, has been quite interesting um, and, and quite an interesting challenge and as well, uh, and also very, I guess, uh, rewarding. In terms of the Indigenous and Transcultural Research Centre, that's really been around in incubation since about 2013. It's taken us a long time to get to research centre status. We started out as a small group and with lots of support um, at my university, we have some amazing agentic kind-hearted, benevolent, intelligent people around uh, and coming together, we formed a critical mass back in 2013 and have built that over the years. In 2020, we were awarded or given uh, research census status, which has just further elevated um, our success. And we've been successful, very successful anyway, in our first year in terms of what we've been doing and what we've been accomplishing. Our focus of the centre is around is around celebrating Indigenous success, highlighting Indigenous success, showcasing it and all its many different forms. So we also focus on transcultural communities being culturally and linguistically diverse communities too. And that affects me as well. My father is Sicilian, hence my name. Um, and he was a migrant to this country and, um, you know, was not allowed to speak their language and all those sorts of things too growing up as well. That research centre has probably been the pride and joy for the last seven years, uh, developing it, growing it and uh, sort of creating a lot of successes. My role with the National Centre for Student Equity in Higher Ed began with a number of small grants, again through connections at the university and then with the Queensland Widening Participation Group and then that extended into the National Centre for Student Equity for Higher Education. Again, I cannot speak more highly of people involved in mining participation and involved in NESHI, supportive, agentic. I always describe them as my mob, basically. Um, and it took me probably 15 years into my career before I found them uh, and have been absolutely thrilled and aligned with them ever since. Uh, as a group and I was able to draw a connection between my discipline area of marketing and NESHI. So my discipline area in particular, I'm interested in an area called social marketing, which is about marketing for social causes and improving the quality of life of individuals. 
and giving people choice and sovereignty. And so that aligns perfectly with what I was looking at with the National Centre for Student Equity in higher ed. One of the benefits of my fellowship with NESHI was that in the year after I completed it, um, I was a part of the task force for the National Regional Rural and Remote tertiary education strategy or the NAPFINE review, which is now shaping or has shaped the jobs ready package um, that we see that's shaping the sector now. Mm. Uh, and probably one of the proudest moments in that was bringing to fruition the recommendation that all Indigenous students would, there would not be a cap on Indigenous student enrolments across the sector. So mm. um, I think I've, I've done some things I'm very, very proud of uh, through those processes as well. Amazing, amazing work, Prof, and I say power to the peculiar. <laughs> Maria, you've also done, you know, some work around evaluation. Um, can you talk a bit about why evaluation of outreach programs is particularly important? So evaluation, probably where it stems from for me is, just, is being a researcher. So I'm a mixed methods researcher and obviously the whole goal of research is to identify insights that can lead to positive changes uh, coming forward. So with evaluation, I also teach, sorry, in an area called services marketing, which is about how we design services and a big part of designing a service is beginning with the end in mind. How do we evaluate the service? And what I've learned about evaluation over the years is it's not just one thing that happens at the end of a process um, when, you know, when the program's finished or as the students are leaving, but evaluation is something that is continuous throughout the program. And a part of it is about keeping your finger on the pulse of what's working and what's not working so you can make changes and adjustments in real time, as well as after the event in terms of reflections to say, well, what worked and what did it and what can we do better next time? I'm also a realist, so I also understand in the higher education sector that there's tensions around evaluation because it can be seen as compliance and it can feel like a burden. So I completely get that as well. So I won't just put the rose-coloured glasses on and say, you know, it's a great thing to do because I also understand the burdens that sit around that. So one of the things that I think evaluation brings to uh, to the university outreach and to Indigenous uh, camp outreach, for example, is that it demonstrates success and it provides that evidence base. So what that means is having that evidence base makes the, the program less vulnerable. It enables more funding going forward into the future. And it also is just that healthy questioning of what worked and what didn't. One of the things we're experiencing across the sector at the moment is, is a paradigm shift. And what we need to do with our outreach is to make sure that this evaluation continues and is up to date so that we can make sure that what we're delivering lines up with secondary school curriculum, but also lines up with the big shift that we're seeing towards um, technology uh, enabled learning and teaching. So, you know, it's that job to shepherd students through and their families and communities through this process. So it's a really important bridge that it creates there. So it helps us to give an ongoing check that we're being successful or not. It develops that evidence base um, and it helps us to dem demonstrate impact. Apart from that, it's just good governance, I think, uh, as a part of the process. But I do uh, acknowledge that it can be burdensome. And, you know, during the fellowship, a number of outreach staff talked about that they needed more guidance or advice on how to do evaluation. Do you have any tips or practical suggestions for outreach staff around evaluation? With it, there is that reaching out to researchers who are in that space. 
But one of the things I've been thinking about as in terms of a way we can do it is rather than as individuals reaching out and trying to develop a suite of tools that can be used in evaluation, that this is a great opportunity to work collectively, perhaps with the Queensland Widening Participation Consortium or perhaps with NESHI to come the National Centre for Student Equity in Higher Ed to create a suite of tools. And maybe that can be a research project, for example, because I think that what we can develop like we do in other areas in marketing, for example, is there's a whole range of different tools, maybe it's surveys or question a question bank, for example, that can be used or a suggested structure of what what evaluation occurs when, you know, at the beginning, the middle and the end, and then how to analyze it I think something that is perhaps a bit scary is the analysis part of it, particularly if you've got a survey and you've got statistics coming in. So providing a bit of guidance around how one actually analyzes that data and what they do with it is really important. The other part that really matters with evaluation is promoting those successes, is not just collecting the data, analyze it, but then promote it. So in, that might be simple infographics, for example, that might show uh, participants and where they've gone to and how uh, and and what their intentions are or what the experience how that experience transformed them it could also be a year on year to show progression over time as well um, but promoting that to the key decision makers within an organization and even just keeping that on record um, so that the next person that picks up that activity as a part of their portfolio can keep moving and keep shifting the dial forward but I think developing a a suite of tools that people can pick and choose from is probably the best way forward because it takes, I think, the pressure off um, trying to figure out what questions to ask, when and of whom. A finding in the fellowship was that also that most outreach programs for Indigenous students are currently for years 10 and 10 to 12. But the earlier stage and age-appropriate outreach for earlier school years would be beneficial. This links with your work, Maria, on timing of outreach activities. Can you talk a little bit about that and why timing is so key? So one of the things I learned through the fellowship was I tapped into an area of research that's been largely ignored in the career development material. When I did my fellowship, it was 2018. So it was before the big focus on career development learning that we have now. And it was one of those first studies that sort of came through that started to pull it, pull together, you know, bits of information. What I found was that, and, and through the mentorship that I received through the department, was that there was a body of work in created by career psychologists in the United States. And when I started looking into that, they talked about these different phases of career development. The first phase is called crystallizing. When we first start to crystallize and think, what do I want to be when I grow up? We all know through our own experience, a career decision isn't something that's made overnight and it's not made by a single person. It's a whole range of influences. It's a protracted, drawn out process that takes years and years and years and even at the end of that, when students enrolled it, not everyone is 100% sure that they made the right decision or that they're going in the right direction. So there's an element of risk that comes into it. But the reason for saying that it should be, uh, sorry, outreach is could, could start occurring earlier is because crystallisation, that's starting to, to really start to put some meat around what do I want to be when I grow up, begins in senior 
senior primary school, so in years five and six, that's when students really start to think about it. So what the literature showed is that in years five and six, they start to actually begin the process of career development and crystallise. What also happens really dramatically then is that they circumvent or they reduce the number of options. So usually in years five and even six, they've got this, I can be anything I want to be in the whole world. And then the world comes in on them and it gets narrower and narrower and narrower. It's those random conversations with parents. It's things they pick up on TV. It's talking to their peers. It's the influence of their tutors. It's no one thing more than anything else. But what happens is their horizon becomes narrower and thinner very early. But one of the things they know that start to learn at that stage is how they have a few options in front of them and some of those options involve going to uni. When students are in year seven and eight, they, that's when they start to explore in a little bit more detail in an ad hoc manner you know not it's not a you know it's not like a program that and and strategic way that people go through it but they start to pay more attention to different careers and the careers that they're interested in doing too what would it be like to work as that they might start looking around their friends and families or their their friends parents to see what careers they have and what they do for a living and how it seems to work for them what happens in about year nine and 10 is there's some really critical defining moments in in Queensland anyway, where in term three of year nine and year 10, they have to start selecting subjects that will then determine what they can do in years 11 and 12. So when you look broadly at the process, streaming doesn't start in year 11. It actually starts back in year nine in term three. So term three is always the critical term. And once students start selecting those courses then or units, that will then determine whether or not they have entry into what they want to do when they grow up. So having a firmer or reasonable idea of what they want to do by year nine and 10 will actually help them to make those choices. Um, so in other research I'd done, this, is, this was the critical defining moment where the wheels came off. So some students got all the way to year the end of year 10 said, you know, actually, I want to do this now. They'd made up their mind, but found that they hadn't done the prerequisites, that they couldn't get into those courses. Uh, For some of them, they were in regional and remote areas where they could only do those subjects online, like some advanced math subjects. They simply were not offered in the area uh, where they lived. And so it just created all these early barriers that just made it harder. When students come to camp in years 11 and 12, what they're not, they're not necessarily exploring career options. What they're doing is confirming or affirming. This is what I think I want to do, actually. And that and through the experience, it, can, it affirms to them, yeah, you're going in the right direction or this seems like a good fit or this is what I thought it would be. So the camp for the senior students at, at the end um, serves a different purpose and it's more about by that stage it's confirming and affirming the the career choice they've made but helping them to decide which university they think they fit best. That's great, teaching us all about that. And Maria, I think that's really important in terms of thinking about well, grade nine is actually a really key time that um, outreach activities could be really valuable for students as well. You talked about promoting success and how important that is in terms of evaluation. Uh, And as you know, the podcast's called Indigenous Success, Doing It, Thinking It, Being It. We want to ask you, what does Indigenous success mean to you? Well, I'd I'd make it plural, Indigenous successes. And I love the name of it too. I think it's a a fantastic name. And I think with Indigenous successes, to me, the first sort of gut response is that it's about showcasing and celebrating all of the amazing things that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have done and continue to contribute to society and do. 
The reason why we have to do it is probably the, the interesting part. Why, why in 2021 are we having to promote and bring awareness to these things? And a part of it is that deficit perspective still exists, that there's a deficit view that Indigenous people aren't contributing or aren't contributing well, or we're, we're looking for role models and not finding them. So a big part of this podcast and the naming of it and what Indigenous success means is it provides more and more role models because you can't be what you can't see. And so a big part of this, I think, is it lets Indigenous young young people, I see that you can be successful. And here are examples of people like you who've come from regional areas, who've come from low SES backgrounds, who've come from, from hardship uh, and have and have made it, uh, I used to always say, swimming upstream and have still and have made it uh, at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. So I think that sort of shows that there's support structures out there that people aren't alone and I think it just celebrates the fact that there's been decades of success that has occurred that we're we're building this platform of Indigenous people who are holding the door open for others to come through and to follow. Thanks Prof it was great having you on the podcast. Thank you. If you've got any questions about this podcast or any of the other podcasts that you may have listened to Please contact Caitlin on her email address, k.barney, that is B-A-R-N-E-Y, k.barney at uq.edu.au. Thank you very much and we hope that you'll join us in the future.